the Spirit of Truth. John chapter 16, uh, beginning with verse number 4, actually 4b. Uh, we've already read the text, so I'm not going to read it again, but uh, to try to expound upon it. Uh, by way of introduction, let me just kind of bring us up to date a little bit. Jesus had explained to the disciples that they would face the hatred of the world. That was in the 15th chapter. And uh, that they would face that hatred in the world because He faced it. And the problem here, I think, is a clash of wills. The will of God versus the will of Satan. If you'll remember when Jesus told the Jews, you're of your father the devil. And what was the evidence of their being of Satan? Your desire is to do his will. So what is the mark of a true believer? A desire to do the will of God. So what we have here is a clash of wills. The will, the world follows Satan. Believers follow Jesus. That, that, therefore, there's a clash. And Jesus came into the world to reveal to them the Father and to proclaim the truth in the midst of Satan's lies. Men are sinners. And because they're sinners, they're in rebellion to God. And because they're in rebellion to God, they reject the truth. So the disciples here were given information to prepare them to stand strong and firm and not fall away in the evil day. When the persecution came to them, as it surely would. The enemy... The enmity of the world is mostly from the religious community. This is the interesting thing. We, we, we're living in a culture today that claims to be atheist. The Big Bang brought everything into existence, not God. And we're just uh, in the natural flow of things, a natural selection, Mother Nature... <laughs> There is no God to which we are to answer. But isn't it interesting that the world, the really the central core of the world is religion. Whether you want to admit it or not, we, we are religious by nature. And religious people need to follow their religious dogma. Jesus came into the world to reveal the Father and the truth in this religious atmosphere, as I pointed out. And so, the fact here is that they see their opposition to Christ as a service of worship. <laughs> Remember, they said... They, they're they're going to think when they persecute you they're going to think they're doing God's service. And the reason for their hatred is they do not know the Father or the Son. That is, know in a relational way. 
we understand what that means because we know what what it is to be a family and to have children and to love the children and to know the children to know our husbands and our wives see that's that's relational knowing the father do you know the father that way do you know the son that way so now the, the son also expressed to them that he needed to go away he needed to go away for two reasons number one he needed to go away for a redemptive purpose he had to go to the cross to have the world's hatred focused on him in such a dramatic way to suffer and bleed and die but really the point here is it's not the world that did this it's his own heavenly father that did this the father sent him to obey him, to take upon himself the sins of his people so that he might redeem them unto God. But God used the wrath of the world to do it. The wrath of the religious world to do it. But there's a second reason why he needed to go away. And that was to allow the Holy Spirit to also come from the Father. And we'll be addressing that in the message. The Spirit would continue Christ's message or His ministry, His mission, if you please, through the believers who would now, in Christ's place, face the brunt, uh, these believers would, in, in Christ's place, face the brunt of the world's hatred. So how does this work? This is the question. So the text here today continues the discussion of the world's hatred of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, the light of the world, is exposing. He's, and he began to expose the sin and the evil that had been hiding in religious darkness. So now the paraclete, paraclete, uh, it's translated in our ESV as helper. I like that. That's a good, I think it's a good translation. Para means it's, uh, it's actually two Greek words there. Para, which means alongside or with. Para, with, or alongside. Kaleo means to call. So para kaleo means one that you call to help you. Uh, we translate it today, lawyer. <laughs> I'm in legal trouble. I'm going to call somebody to help me. Because I don't know about these legal things he does, so I'm going to use him, at least I hope he does, <laughs> to deal with my legal things. He's called a paraclete. This paraclete, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, sent from the Father, would then take Jesus' place and continue the work through his chosen ones. Then the Spirit then would expose the world's guilt with respect to sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're going to get into that. It's not, you know, uh, it's not, to, when, when, when you read these things, you, immediately comes into your mind certain ideas, but it, it, I think it's not going to be what you think it is. So that, we'll, we'll show you this. This exposing work then of the Spirit would also involve the Word of God. The Word. God left us two things, His Spirit and the Word of God. 
That's all we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need visions and dreams. We don't need this God coming to us in the night and telling us things. We don't need that at all. We've got all we need right here. So this exposing work of the Spirit then, involving the Word of God, and we see that there in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living, is a living book, and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a weapon. <laughs> Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And as a consequence, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Think of that. I mean, every one of us in this room are going to give an account to God one of these days. We better be prepared to give a good account. We will. And we can't hide anything on God. One of the things in the courthouse, in the courtroom, is the, it is the divulging of the truth. Somehow we've got to investigate and then be able to divulge the truth. Sadly, men are able to hide things from human judges. And sometimes people get away with things because the truth doesn't come out at the trial. But when God brings us into judgment, nothing will be hidden. He knows everything. You better be prepared. And the first item of preparation is, do you know Jesus? Has he saved you? Has he cleansed your heart? So let's get into this today. And we want to examine this work of the Spirit with respect to two things. The world and the Word. So first of all, here in, in verses 4b through 11, we're only going to go through verse 4, 15. We read through verse 24, I believe, in the, the reading. But we're only going to go uh, this morning through verse 15. But the first part of this... Uh, verses 4b through 11 is the work of the Spirit with respect to the world. And Jesus explained here the reason for his telling the disciples uh, about what they would face was that he had, had been with them until then, but was about to leave them. There in verse 4b. So here's some things you need to know. And uh, it's, it's interesting, some have seen a contradiction right away here in that because Jesus said here, none of you asks me, where are you going? And then somebody said, oh, that, that's not right because Peter, uh, back there in chapter 13, verse 36, said, where are you going? <laughs> so is, was that a mistake? Did Jesus uh, not... Uh, Remember that Peter had already asked him that? Or the, even Thomas there in the 14th chapter in verse number 5 said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Was, although it's not exactly asking the question, he's, it's still there. Where are you going? There's no contradiction here. 
Now, there aren't any contradictions in the Scripture. None. The ones that appear so are only due to our misunderstanding. And so there are two considerations, I think, here that qualify and clarify this apparent contradiction, uh, this contradictory statement of Jesus. First is that he was not saying the disciples had never asked concerning him, but that at that point, as he is discussing with them, they're not asking him, where are you going? I think that's a, that's a legitimate explanation. Peter had asked him, where are you going back there earlier? But now he's not asking that question. And he needs to. This is Jesus said, this is when you need to be asking me this question. But I think there's another thing. And that is to look at Peter's re- question. When Peter asked, where are you going? I don't think he was asking that in the same way that Jesus phrased that question here. And let me explain that. It's not an honest question. It's rather a protest. Because Peter is very self-absorbed in his shock of loss. And his willful determination to follow Jesus wherever he went, even to death. And Jesus reminded him, you're not going to do that. Tonight, everybody is going to forsake me. Including you. They all protested. No, Lord, that's not so. Jesus knew, and he knew their hearts. So, the question here is, what did Peter mean when he said, where are you going? And I think I can best illustrate it with a story. A little short story here. There was a, a man... Uh, who and was going to take his son on a fishing trip that, on a Saturday. They got up in the morning and they were getting their stuff together and the phone rang. The father went in to answer the phone. It was his boss at work and he said, we've got an emergency situation here that's come up and we need you down here as soon as possible. So he came back out into the garage where his son was busily and excitedly putting his fishing gear together he said, son, he said, I'm not going to be able to, to go with you today. And the son said, where are you going? He's disappointed. He's upset. He's not asking his dad where he's going. He's protesting. You promised to take me fishing today. Now you're not going to take me fishing. That's Peter. That's Peter here. So there's no contradiction here. There is no contradiction. In spite of Jesus' warning about his impending death, the disciples held to their understanding that Messiah would be a conquering king. That's what they expected. Clear up to the last. That understanding was correct only in its proper timing. That would be the case eventually, but when Jesus told them he was going away, instead of asking him to help them to understand the course of his journey to the crown, they fussed about why they were now affected by this information. 
They were upset, angry, sad, grieved. Said, sorrow has filled your hearts. If they truly understood why and where Jesus was going, they would have rejoiced. We see that in the next section. Instead, their hearts are filled with sorrow. However, God's plan for them was that they would experience the fullness of joy. You know, this is, a, this is an issue that, that I have to deal with. I've got a lot of disappointments. And when I have disappointments and discouragements, how do I re respond to them? Do I see God's will being carried out in my life? Or do I see a frustration of my own personal will? That's the question. When I'm disappointed, it's, it's my will that's being frustrated. Not the will of God. How do I know when... when uh, Something happens and I'm responding to it improperly. Here, this is, I think is very important to us. And I, I'm trying, I'm really, I'm, I'm depending on the Spirit of God to enable me to really get this down. But when I'm disappointed and my response is to be discouraged, I know that it's me. But if I am disappointed and I understand that the will of God is still being done, I am filled with joy. And I just need to ask, Lord, what's the next step? So let's, let's see here then that Jesus had to go in order for the Spirit to come. We, we said there are two reasons. One was that he had to go to the cross, but but now in this section here, he's telling them, the Spirit, ha I have to go away and it's better for you. It's for your good that I'm doing this because if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, He will come to you. So he had to go for the Spirit to come. Not only uh, that they could then uh, not coexist, that is Jesus and the Spirit, it's not that they were that they would be competing with each other if they both stayed. That's not the point. But that uh, the scriptures predicted that this that the gospel age, what we're living in right now, would also be referred to as the age of the spirit. It's not the age of Jesus. It's the age of the spirit. Let me just share a few. Uh, some quick references for Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth, this is beginning with verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with, the equ with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he shall 
Oh, kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The earth, and then skipping to verse number 10. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand for a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Just look at that verse. That's what's, that's what's happening in this gospel age. Jesus is gone personally, but the Spirit of God is carrying on the work of God. Je- where is Jesus? Jesus is sitting, sitting, sitting at the right hand of, ma- of the majesty on the right hand of God. And he's doing his will in the earth. Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't look like it. But it, it's being done. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 14. For the palace is forsaken until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people shall abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. You say, I don't see that in the world. No, it's not in the world. It's in his kingdom. And where is his kingdom manifest? Right here, now. When the people of God are gathered together, my people shall abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Ezekiel 11, 17-20 Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all detestable things and all its abominations. We're separated people. And I will give them one heart and one spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Do the will of God that they may be my people, and I will be their God. Wow. When's he fulfilling it? Right now. And then, in uh, Joel 2, which Jesus, excuse me, which Peter preached (laughs) on the day of Pentecost there, about uh, when they were inquiring about what was going on there. Listen to this. And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is all believing flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the idea here is, it's equating it with with what was in in the... uh, 
Old Testament. Not necessarily that it's going to be exactly this way now, but it, the idea is, under the Old Testament, that was only reserved for certain people that God called to give them that thing. But now it says what they experienced scattered, and not all the people, specifically to certain individuals, is now going to be available to everybody. And what is that? It's the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And on every male and, and female servant in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in, he, in the heavens of, and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The earth shall be turned to, to dark, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the saving reign of Jesus Christ. And the saving reign of, of Jesus Christ cannot be fully implemented until Jesus died and rose again from the dead and then seated at the right hand of God. People often wish they could see Jesus' day. However, Jesus said that the age of the Spirit is the best age. So thirdly then, when the Spirit comes, He's going to do three things. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's verse 8. The question is, just what was Christ seeking to convey here? Convict must be understood in a personal sense. Not arguing the guilt of, of the world before God's court. That's coming. <laughs> that day is coming. When everyone shall stand before God at the judgment. But now he convicts specific individuals. Brings specific individuals under conviction. We talk about that. Have, have you been convicted of your sin? Have you been brought to see your sin personally before God? So it's a personal thing. And Jesus' ministry of truth then is forced in a division in the world. When God, when the Spirit of God brings conviction, here's the problem. It also brings division. So if they persecuted me, and it's found in the words there of 15 verse 20 when Jesus said, if they persecuted me. And here's the, here's the gist of that. I, I tried to explain it. Let me explain it again, and I hope that you'll see this. If they persecuted me. Now the question is, why did they persecute you? And, and there's an, an ellipsis here, I think, that the, I think the disciples probably understood as Jesus was speaking it. But we need, to we need to see that. Why was the world persecuting Jesus? Because what he was telling them, his word, they were not receiving it. They rejected it. So if they persecuted me because they rejected my word, they're going to persecute you because they, they're going to reject your word about me. 
And that's understood then in the next phrase. If they receive your word, they re, they, if they receive my word, they will receive yours too. That's what he's, what he's saying. Same thing. Now what's, what causes this? It's the work of the Spirit of God. I preach the truth. And when I preach the truth, if it is received, it's because the people who receive it are of God. But if they reject it, it's because they are not of God. It's in the power of the Spirit. So in other words, the preaching of the word of Christ in the power of the Spirit divides the world into two groups. Most will reject the word. Many will persecute the preacher. Others, the elect, will hear the word, believe it, and keep it unto eternal life. Have you done that? Or are you rejected? Lots of people think they, they, they think they're receiving it because there's a personal aspect of it. I don't want to go to hell. If I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, I'll go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell, so I'll accept Jesus. But did Jesus accept you? And the evidence of whether or not you really believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ is your desire to follow His will. If you don't, do, if you don't follow His will, you can't claim to have received Him. See, this is the point. So let's look at this a little more closely. The Spirit will convict of sin. Personal sin. And notice it's, it tells us that there's a reason for it, see? Sin, because those in and of the world do not believe in Jesus. That's the point. Yes, He does convict us of, of our unrighteousness before God of our failures of our sins or disobedience and so forth and so on but that's not really what he's talking about here he will convict the world of sin the sin the main sin the singular sin that damns your soul Jesus what did you do with Jesus did you reject him do you want to obey Him? Do you want to live for Him? Do you want to love Him? Do you want to serve Him? Jesus. So we read here, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. John 3, verses 18 and 19. Listen to it. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You're not going to go to hell because you're a liar, although that makes you a sinner. <laughs> you're not going to go to hell because you cheated on somebody and stole something. Or even murdered somebody. Or committed adultery. 
you'll go to hell because you said no to Jesus. That's what it says. And this is the judgment. Or let, let's put it this way. The verdict of condemnation. It says they're, condemn, they're condemned already. This is the verdict of that condemnation. The light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Because their, de- their, words, or their deeds or works are evil. That tells us why they rejected him. Verse 19. So the purpose then of this convicting work is gracious. When the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God convicts your heart about Jesus, rejoice in it because that is a gracious work of God. He is bringing you to salvation. And all the elect will receive that and recognize their need for Him. They're in the world now, but they're going to recognize their need. They'll turn to Jesus and be delivered out of the world. And thus the Jews thought they were right with God. The Jews thought, see, this here's where the religion comes in. Lots of people think, well, I'm good. I'm good enough. That's how the Jews were. We're God's people. We're seed of Abraham. We're the people of God merely because we have Abraham's DNA. And therefore, they assumed they were right with God on that basis. And so, so then they rejected Jesus as a deceiver, luring them away from God. So now the Spirit's work is to show them their error and expose their sinfulness for the purpose of bringing them, bringing some, that is, the elect, to faith in Jesus. Secondly, the, world, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Because Jesus was going to the Father. Now let's look at that one. This is the only time in the Gospel of John that this word righteousness appears. It's the word righteousness. But note here that righteousness is spoken of here is the world's righteousness. Not the righteousness of God. And Jesus said because he was going to the Father. We you see we need to understand here what he's saying with that. So here let, let me just explain it like this. Jesus is using righteousness here in a negative sense because of its parallel with the with sin. People tend to believe in their own goodness and rightness. What they were going to do now to Jesus, which would be the cause of his going to the Father, is the issue. They thought, and, and Jesus said, when, when they persecute you, they're going to think they're doing God's service. They believed they were doing God's service in putting Jesus on the cross. You see that? They were right. So their problem is self-righteousness. And people tend to believe in their own goodness and rightness. 
I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I've heard I don't know how many times I've heard that. Well, you need Jesus. Well, I'm a good person. I'll just add Jesus to my goodness. And that's that's another problem. See, a lot of times people think they think that they're right with God because they they want to just add Jesus to their own goodness. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm a good person. And Jesus will just make me a little bit better. That's just kind of icing on the cake. Uh-uh. I've got to see that I'm destitute. That I have no goodness. And here's why. See, self-righteous is, self-righteousness is egregious. It's appalling. It's horrible. It's atrocious. It's an abomination to God. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All, all we, not some, all we, we have become all like one who is unclean. Uncleanness, see? It's a, in, in, under God's Old Testament standards, there's two things. Holy unclean holy acceptable to God pure or unclean rejected by God see here's the issue we have all become like one who is unclean rejected by God cannot come into the temple cannot have anything to do with true spiritual worship and all, not some, all our righteous deeds, our good works, our goodness, are like polluted, are like a polluted garment. That's a, that the Hebrew there is a little more. It means a menstruous cloth to be cast away, to be rejected. Ugh! I don't want anything to do with it. People see their good works as good and acceptable to God. God looks at their good works as detestable, stinking, abomination, and flatly rejects them. And then self-righteousness is also hopelessly inadequate. So when we read there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, they thought, man, we're, we're the righteous people here. They, they were so righteous, they looked down on all the rest of the people. We're righteous, and they're not. Jesus told, told the people, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to this. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. Self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was very was the very cause of their rejection of Jesus. It motivated their desire to have him put to death, which means I'm going away to the Father. This Return then allowed the Spirit. See the see how God works. 
they got Jesus out of the way, but God just turned around and said, okay, I'm going to send the Spirit now. You rejected my son, I'm going to send the Spirit. So that allowed the Spirit to continue Jesus' work in, the, in his absence through his followers. That's what Jesus is telling them. I'm going, but don't worry. God's sending my, the Spirit in my place and what he's going to do with you could never be done with my physical presence with you. See? So then thirdly here, the Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Because, and notice this, it, 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 it always ties back to what he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. When was the ruler of this world judged? When Jesus went to the cross. This fulfilled Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. You, you're going to bruise his heel. In fact it's interesting. I learned something. That when Romans crucified. They didn't put the nails through the front of the foot. They drove them through the side of the foot. In the heel. Because that's what would support them on the cross. Whereas you put them in. In that flesh, then the flesh could rip away and the, the foot would be released. But not back in the, on, the, on the heel itself. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And when Jesus went to the cross, he crushed the head. He defeated Satan on the cross. Because the ruler of this world is judged. So what is judgment here? Again, it's not a reference to the judgment of God that's going to come at the end of the world, but rather this is a, this is a judgment of man's judgment. Or we might even prefer a, a, another word, opinion, I think would be a better, a better way to understand this because this is what the word in the Greek means. It means opinion or decision. We talk about judgment. In the court of law, the judge sits behind there and he listens to the case and he renders his opinion or his verdict. He, a decision. He makes a decision. Here's my decision based on the facts. So we want judges that will listen to the, to the facts and, and judge it fairly. <laughs> well, that's what's, that's what's involved here. The Spirit will convict the world of its false judgment because Satan stands condemned. The Jews judged Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. Back there in John 7. Jesus responded to them in verse 24. Do not judge by appearance, but judge right judgment. Truth. Don't bring an opinion or a verdict or a decision based upon what you think might be the case here, but what is actually the case. In chapter 8, Jesus charged the Jews with passing judgment on Jesus' witness about himself because they said his witness is not true. Why? Because the law said at the, at the, at the word of two or three, shall a thing be established. And Jesus said, my witness is true. 
because first of all I came from the Father and the second of all because the Father and the Word are my witnesses and it was true he understood what uh, he, God the Father understood what he was doing and whereas they did not they had no understanding of Jesus' business because they did not know the Scriptures. And he told them that. You don't know the Scriptures. Nor the power of God. He even chided them. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. Not even do I... not, And even if I do judge in my flesh, my judgment is true. For it is not I who alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Be careful about your opinions. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So the tendency of sinful humans, when considering the facts, is to draw wrong conclusions. Satan is the father of lies. Boy, do not we live in a culture of lying? I mean, it's everywhere. You don't know who to believe. I certainly don't believe what I'm told on the television. <laughs> he convinced Eve in the garden that God's prohibition was detrimental to her well-being. That's his stock and trade. Appreciate what Ron said this morning. Just right on. He wants to fool people into misjudging God's plans and purposes. And the, and the Jews were experts in doing the same. Jesus came to rescue the sheep from the false shepherds and to give them the light of life. I am the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, untruth, but will have the light of life. That's truth. This, and that's verse 12. Then Jesus said, uh, and uh, Jesus, this was Jesus' assertion to the worldlings. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And when they asked him who he was, he replied, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much more to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. Wow. Worldlings, even, even religious worldlings, tend to pass judgment on others based on their opinion, not the authority of Scripture. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus said? It is because you cannot hear my word. This is John 8, by the way. You cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires that's it that brings us then to the word and let me hurry
uh, with this. It's only a couple of verses here, three verses. It is fitting then, and this is the Spirit's work with respect to the Word. What is going to conquer the world? It's the Word. The Spirit using the Word. So it's fitting in this section, which is the fifth and final paraclete passage, that it shifts from the world to the Word. Jesus had much to tell the disciples, but they could not, at that point, understand or bear the things at that time. Some have suggested a contradiction here. Because earlier Jesus claimed to have already told them everything. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. That was back in 15, verse 5, uh, 15. 15, 15. Now again, there's no contradiction here. It's We just need to understand the all of verse 15. All with respect to salvation. I mean, there's an awful lot that we that we don't we still don't understand. But it's salvation, so there's no contradiction. It, not everything about God, the Father, or His plans or the future, but it, uh, everything we need to know about salvation is plainly revealed to us. And what Jesus meant by much more to tell the disciples had to do with what he was about to accomplish in his death and resurrection. They couldn't even begin to understand the purpose of his dying or the purpose of his being raised again. But after that has accomplished and after Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit of God, these fellows then were able not only to understand it, they wrote Scripture. And that, I really think, is what Jesus is, is enforcing with them then. It's not necessarily for us. We receive it derivatively. But they are told right here that they are going to be the authors of Scripture. So, that, so they're in Hebrews. Uh, excuse me. Uh, what Jesus meant by much more to tell than had to do with what he was about to accomplish. And their inability to bear that revelation had more to do with their emotional state there and also than their comprehension. So the Spirit then would, would enable the final self-disclosure of Jesus as God's ultimate and final revelation. These days are called the last days. Because Jesus is the final revelation of God. There is no more revelation. We've got it all. God is not going to come up with a new revelation tonight. It's all here, right here. And the Spirit then would enable this final self-disclosure of Jesus as God's ultimate and final revelation. So we read there in Hebrews... And by the way, Paul wrote that, uh, Hebrews, long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become uh, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Ah, wow. Once again, he came, the Spirit, then would sort out Jesus' revelation of himself to his followers. And it's important here to note that the Spirit of truth guides, he says he's going to guide you in all truth, not into. The Spirit guides us, his disciples in all truth, not into. In suggests the exploration of truth already disclosed, whereas into suggests discovering truth not yet revealed. There is no more revelation. Jesus is the last revelation of God. There's nothing left to reveal, only to understand. Jesus is the truth. He's all the truth, as the Spirit is truth. Thus, the Spirit of truth was was given to guide the people of God in the truth of God as this is revealed in His Son. This is what this is an answer to the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, the God of my salvation. For I wait. For you I wait all the day long. So how does the Spirit answer that prayer? As Jesus did not speak on his own authority, the Spirit speaks only on that he receives from the Father through Christ. This submission reflects the essential unity of God in, in, in the redemptive purpose. There is no competition. Things to come, by the way, does not refer to the end time prophecies. It refers to the things that are going to take place. And particularly, immediately, with respect to the disciples, to prepare them to write the scriptures. The disciples. These disciples would be writers of scripture. So just as Jesus' ministry brought glory to the Father who sent him, so the Spirit's coming was intended to glorify the Son. The Spirit's central aim is to glorify Jesus. The, the, the Spirit glorified, and then this, see, here's, here's my problem with a lot of uh, Pentecostal religion. It does, it's not glorifying Jesus, it's glorifying the Spirit. I don't think the Spirit's happy with that. So, the question then is, who are the beneficiaries of this work of the Spirit? First of all, this, the beneficiaries clearly refer to those to whom Christ was speaking, the apostles, because they would become the authors of New Testament Scripture. Second, the followers of the apostles would benefit derivatively because of what the Spirit taught the apostles, and which they wrote down, and now the Spirit is the author of this book, but he's also the interpreter of this book. And so we read there all that the Father, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that He, the Spirit of Truth, will take what is mine, the Spirit of the Word of Truth, and declare it to you. 
So here's our conclusion. Jesus exposed the emptiness of the world's religious pretensions with his light. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that uh, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, those who are of God don't mind their works being seen. Because it brings glory to God, not themselves. So how would Jesus continue to expose the emptiness of the world's religious pretensions? With his light, when when he's gone? The Spirit would do this work through his disciples. Some would believe, others would turn on the disciples with the same hatred and disdain that they showed to Jesus when he exposed their sin and unrighteousness. And then the Holy Spirit's work in this gospel age is to set Christ forth in all his glory. The Spirit is the author of all scripture, which makes the gospel possible. His work, now that the scriptures are complete, is to illuminate them and to enable Jesus' followers to understand what is written, not to reveal some new and additional truth. And thirdly, this is what the Bible and submit uh, this makes the Bible in submission to the Spirit's leading essential to the Christian life. Are you a person of the book? God gave us only one book. Master it. Master it. That's been the desire of my heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Lord, what a powerful passage. And I pray, God, that you would give your people the understanding of it this morning. That we would walk in its truth. We believe it. We would function on, a, on account of it. Believing and knowing and understanding that the spirit of truth is in us. And he will guide us into all truth. And he will guide our ways and change us and make us to conform to Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. Lord, we want to do your will. We want your will to be done. And we thank you for what you're doing, what you're doing in Jesus' name.